In the story of the book of Esther, uh, the king of Persia asks his highest ranking official whose name was Haman, Haman, what should be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman, if you're familiar with the story, he suspected the king was referring to him. And so he answered by saying, well, let the man whom the king desires to honor be dressed in royal robes and honorably paraded through the streets of Susa on a royal horse while wearing a royal crown. And the idea pleased the king and so he decreed that those exact things be done, although ironically that they be done for uh, Haman's arch nemesis Mordecai, right? It's a wonderful story of reversals. I think Haman's posture though of self-promotion serves as a, a helpful counter illustration to what we are going to see and what we're about to read of the promised Messiah in Zechariah chapter nine. So Haman desired to be lauded and applauded by all the citizens of Persia and beyond. And if it had been up to Haman, he would have been decorated and paraded in all the pomp and prestige of a noble king. And the sobering thing for me, uh, when I read and reread uh, through the story of the book of Esther, I'm not that different from Haman. If I were the author of my own story, in all of my fallen vainglory, I would want the same to be done for me. I'd wanna be paraded and appreciated and decorated and recognized. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us in one way or another would want this, right? Because ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit and ushered sin into the world, look, one of the biggest symptoms of our fallenness is that we all want glory. We all want recognition and decoration in one way or another, right? We're not all the exact same in the way we desire that, but nonetheless, it's true. And interestingly, when we read the stories of all the other so-called gods of the world's religions, right? If you read about you know, the mythical Greek gods or the pantheon of Hindu gods, reading the stories of, of the gods of men and legend and lore, one of the quickest things that you'll see, they're exactly like us. <laughs> they're exactly like, they're, they're not above the vain glories of fallen men because their stories were concocted by fallen men. The same is not true, however, of the one true God of the Bible and the one majestic Messiah whose humble arrival was foretold hundreds of years before its fulfillment. In a moment, when I read Zechariah chapter nine, I'm gonna read through you know, verses nine through 17. And, and, and as I read, what we're about to hear and what we're about to see, the illustration that kind of comes of, of the Messiah King, it's an entirely different posture than all the kings of earth. The entirely different posture than I would take if I were the author of the story, right? 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Zechariah foretold that the matter of Jesus coming and the manner of his life would be unlike any other king 
the world had ever seen. And so before I read, remember with me quickly from last Sunday from the book of Micah. It was prophesied that Israel would fall to the Assyrians and that Judah would fall to the Babylonians. And in the course of history, that, that ended up happening because everything in God's word comes to fruition. And the Jews spent 70 years in exile Uh, as foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. But then, in 539 BC, the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, defeated the Babylonian Empire, and he released the Jews from their captivity. And many of the Jews, such as Mordecai in the book of Esther, many of the Jews remained in Persia, but many of them returned to Jerusalem. And then to those whom returned to Jerusalem, God spoke through two prophets at that time, Haggai and Zechariah. Not much is known about Zechariah, but his divinely inspired words and the meaning of his name would have consoled God's weary people returning from exile. So Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. But then 150 to 200 years later, around 500 BC, after the Babylonian exile, God raised up Zechariah, whose name means Yahweh remembers. God hasn't forgotten you, people of God. He hasn't forgotten to rescue and restore you. And so the verse we'll examine today is Zechariah 9.9, but I'll read Uh, through verse 17, if you'd like to follow along. And and Father, we ask and trust that you uh, will bless this reading of your word in Jesus' name. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. The Lord of hosts will protect them, And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord, their God, will save them. As the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This is the word of the Lord. So what does Zechariah 9, 9 have to do with Advent? Absolutely nothing. And at the same time, everything, all right? So follow me on this. 
the literal fulfillment of this prophecy that we've just read is of course recorded in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and, and Luke 19. Not at Jesus' birth, but at his triumphal entry. As he rode into Jerusalem the week of his crucifixion, John 12, 12 through 16 records for us and Jesus, was, uh, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. John continues, his disciples didn't understand this at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. Now, what I hope to highlight in Zechariah 9, 9 this morning is actually really simple. I'm not going to unpack this word by word. Instead, I want to highlight this morning how this messianic prophecy contributes to a motif, a theme, a pattern that traces all the way back to Jesus' earthly birth and pervades through every aspect of his life and his ministry, okay? We're, we're looking at Zechariah 9.9 thematically today. I think it's a powerful theme, powerful passage with powerful implications. It begins, behold, O daughter of Jerusalem, your king is coming to you righteous and victorious to save you. Now, having just returned to Jerusalem after nearly a century of captivity, wouldn't this promise have just been music to the ears of God's weary people? They were kingless. They were trying to build, uh, rebuild Jerusalem and get on their feet, but they were vulnerable. They were exposed to the surrounding nations. They needed a king and the kingly salvation he was to bring, according to this prophecy, led the people of Judah and all of Israel to believe that the coming king would be one of military prowess. And yet right here, in our verse, in the second half of verse nine, Zechariah clearly states this coming king, he'll be humble. That is, he will be meek. He'll be mild, not lofty, lowly. He will not be paraded through their gates on horseback or chariot like Haman would have been in some sort of military conquest like earthly kings before him. No, 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 no. This coming king would confound their expectations. He would enter their gates on a young donkey, meaning this, he would enter their gates in peace, as their peace, to bring peace and to speak peace to the nations. This is one of the most clear and most important details of this prophecy. And even though it, it, is, it is clear, 500 years later when Jesus sat upon the donkey to ride into Jerusalem at his triumphal entry, even his disciples were confused. Wait a minute. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, shouldn't, shouldn't you be preparing to battle against the Roman occupation that oppresses us? Haven't you come to save us and to gain us victory? This motif, this theme of lowliness and not loftiness, 
humility and not hubris runs so consistently through every aspect of Jesus' life, it ought to, to, to bring up within us just marveling and astoundedness. How can we not marvel that the righteous, eternal king of heaven was earthly born of a young virgin woman from the backwoods of Nazareth, just as prophesied? How can we not marvel that the righteous, eternal king of heaven was born in the tiny, insignificant town of Bethlehem, just as prophesied? How can we not marvel that due to the commotion of Caesar Augustus's census that was taking place, there was no room in the Bethlehem Inn. And the righteous, eternal king of heaven within Mary's womb was rejected and turned away, just as prophesied. How can we not marvel that he was born and then laid in a manger, <laughs> a feeding trough for livestock? How can we not marvel that his first visitors were of no prominence or nobility? They were lowly shepherds. How can we not marvel that when the word of his birth made it to the murderously egotistical self-proclaimed King Herod, Jesus, the eternal king and righteousness of heaven, as a toddler, had to be smuggled to Egypt by his earthly parents for safekeeping until Herod's death, just as prophesied. How can we not marvel that he was raised in Nazareth, the saying of which went like this, nothing good comes from Nazareth, nothing. Nazareth is such a backwater, low level, nobody, nobody wants to go there, nobody wants to be from there. How can we not marvel the king in all of his righteous glory everlasting descended and was earthly raised in Nazareth? How can we not marvel that before he began his ministry, he was announced throughout Judea just as prophesied, but unlike earthly kings before him, he was announced by a very unroyal, unregal herald, John the Baptist. He was clothed in camel hair and he ate locusts and honey, right? How can we not marvel that throughout the region of Galilee, Jesus traveled as he preached the good news that the kingdom of heaven had arrived, just as prophesied, but his most common audience was anything but strategic for an earthly king. He didn't wine and dine with dignitaries and the movers and shakers of society. He gave himself to the blind, the mute, the lame, the poor, the prisoner, and the outcast, just as prophesied. How can we not marvel that his three years of earthly ministry were spent homeless, without a place to lay his head, a place of his own? And finally, just as prophesied, how can we not marvel that he was betrayed and denied 
and conspired against and falsely accused and arrested and beaten and mocked and pierced and executed as a criminal and then buried in a tomb that he was too poor to afford on his own, all as prophesied. Would you have written your own story that way? No. Would you have subjected yourself to that sort of life and lowliness? I wouldn't have. Haman wouldn't have. Adam and Eve wouldn't have. The citizens of Babel wouldn't have. Israel's repertoire of corrupt kings wouldn't have. All of this reflection led C.S. Lewis to confess in, in a writing, if any of us had written the story, we'd have written it drastically different. And yet, the coming Son of God who wrote the story in submission to the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he determined he would be low. The theme of Zechariah, I'm moved. Just the theme of Zechariah 9.9 is the theme of Advent. And it should astound us. Christ is humble. Christ is faithful. Christ is Savior. And so this is going to probably be the shortest message I've ever preached. Hallelujah. I'm just going to just dance on those three application points briefly. Christ is humble, number one. God incarnate, the last Adam, as the Apostle Paul refers to him. If he is humble, what should that preach to me? What should it preach to you? I am so much like the first Adam. All, you know, reaching up to the tree, reaching for my own notoriety, my own security, my own material comforts and possessions. I, all of us, ever since Adam, reaching up to be like God, but the last Adam stooped down. He put on flesh to become like us. He was emptied of his notoriety, his glory. He forfeited material possessions and comforts and securities. If Christ is humble, what should that make me? What should that make me in this season and every season? What should it make me in my work, in my home, with my neighbors, at the gym, or where, clearly I never go there, but like wherever I go, like what, what should it make me? What should it make you and how? Do we put on that kind of lowliness? Look, some of us are business owners. Some of us are, we're well. We're doing, we're doing well, but you, we can still be lowly in posture. We can still cry out to the God who saves us from our own egos. And we can still cry out, oh Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you make me to be humble like your son? To think of myself not as awful, but to think of myself a lot less than I do. 
and to be minded toward my neighbor whom I am supposed to love in reflection of how much I love Christ. Christ is humble and so should I be, so should we be. Christ is faithful, number two. He came precisely as his word foretold to accomplish precisely what his word foretold. I hope that it has been over the last few weeks of this Advent series where we've been looking at four of the Old Testament prophecies that came to full fruition with Jesus coming. I hope you've been just reinvigorated and bolstered in this fact that, gosh, what God has said in his word, every bit of it's gonna come to fruition. Most of it already has. But he is faithful. He is so faithful, Christ is, and our God is, that we can rejoice before we see the fulfillment of all his promises, just as Zechariah calls the Jews to do right here in verse nine. The king hadn't come yet. Rejoice. He's coming. And, you know, what does this say to us this morning about the second advent of of Christ? He is coming again in the same way that every T was crossed and I was dotted of all the Old Testament prophecies that Christ came to fulfill the first time. So what do we read in the New Testament about his return? And the, and the humility here, the, the, the sobering thing. Christ came in once on a donkey. He is returning on a war horse when he returns. And he will vanquish the enemy. And he will, he will vanquish death itself. Hallelujah. But just as sure as the Old Testament prophecies of his first advent, so the New Testament promises of his second advent. I also love this faithfulness in Christ that he came to give to his people not what they most expected, but what they most needed. He didn't come and riding into Jerusalem on a war horse to just appease all of the expectations and what they were desiring, which was kind of a temporal freedom from Roman oppression. He didn't do that. God, in all of his wisdom, all of his providential wonder, Jesus stepped onto the scene to give those people and we what we most need, which is not temporal release from this little minor issue. It is eternal salvation of our souls, reconciled to God the Father forever and ever and ever. He didn't come to give the people what was most expected, but what was most needed. Thirdly, Christ is Savior. I wonder... Did he do all of these things? Did he fulfill all of these prophecies in the most remarkably low and humble ways that he did, all so that we could consider him a path toward God? You know, one of many ways to God. God the Father, Son, and Spirit has not precisely orchestrated and executed the incarnation, revelation, and redemption of Christ to allow our relativistic culture to diminish him and to say he is one way to God among many. He didn't go through all of this to be a way. We will either enter 
God's forever kingdom through repentant faith in Christ or we will not enter it. Period. And so for anyone in this week preceding Advent, we celebrate here, if, if you are here and not repentantly clinging to the person and work of Christ, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, his imminent return, and his consummating of a glorious forever kingdom in which we, we get to live with him face to face, unveiled face forever. If you are not in Christ by that repentant faith, oh, I would admonish, you will not enter the kingdom of God but by any other way. There is but one way, truth, and life. Believe him. Christ willingly lowered himself into the filth and folly of this rebellious world. He was trampled on like an exile of exiles, laid in a manger, smuggled to Egypt for survival, hated on account of his hometown, homeless on account of his mission, and hung on a cross for simply telling people the truth of who he was. God. The eternally exalted Son of God did not willingly subject himself to all of that for us to reason to ourselves in our smart 21st century minds. Eh, he's one way. I'm sorry, Lord, for the mockery that many of us have made of you in this world. If there is anything that we might ponder this day, this week, every day, every week, anything we might savor and sing and celebrate, there is but one true, holy, worthy, triune God, and there is but one way to be rescued by him, restored to him, and made righteous like him for eternity. It is God the Son, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, who, for the sake of demonstrating God's love toward us, though he was and is highly exalted, he became lowly and excluded and executed on behalf of our sin. Jesus be praised. He will be low. He will be wonderful. And he will be returning soon in absolutely outlandish glory. Let's pray. Father, I'm not nearly as thankful for your word as I ought to be, but... I will mutter this, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for promises of old, long before Christ, they were foretold. And then at his advent, his arrival, his coming, they were fulfilled. Oh Lord, we see you when we look at the person and work of Christ in the scriptures. And we thank you for the love that you poured out for us in sending him and Jesus for your willingly coming, subjecting yourself to our exile, being the lowest of the low, despised and rejected, esteemed not. And Lord, 
Jesus, we know that you did it primarily, firstly, for the glory of your own name, for the name of the Godhead. But Lord, we are also tremendously elated and joy-filled by this, that in you is our salvation. And by your life, death, and resurrection, we may draw near to the throne of grace for salvific help and for help in time of need here on this earth. And we await your second advent with tremendous confidence. Your word will come to fruition. So we hold fast as you hold fast us. And we sing and we praise, we worship because you are worthy of all these things and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.